So I heard last week was phenomenal, and, and then I watched it, and it was. In fact, I watched it in live time, and I just really enjoyed it. So, Scott, thank you for leading us last week. Uh, we will have a change here coming up in December. Uh, I'm, I've been invited, which I'm very excited about, to do a three-month, about a three-month, it's going to be like ten weeks, teaching for Women's Refuge on Friday mornings. And it's a verse-by-verse. Verse. They invite different pastors in the community to come and do a, a, you know, a 10 to 12-week uh, Bible study on a particular book of the Bible. So I, I've uh, said, yes, I'd love to do it. It'd be, a, be an honor to do that. So that'll be Friday morning. Well, that will require the same amount of time and preparation as Thursday night. And I think that doing Sunday morning each week and then uh, Thursday night and Friday morning would be too much. So we're already looking at different things that we can do with the Thursday night Bible study. Uh, obviously, we have some gifted Bible teachers that we can feature and bring in week after week. Another possibility is, I'm, I think I start that with the Women's Refuge the first Friday morning of December. So starting the first Thursday of December, uh, we would have different ones speak. We would have two weeks off as we normally do for Christmas Thursday, that Thursday following, or before Christmas, which I think falls on what day? Anyway, and then also the going into New Year's that Thursday. But then coming into the new year in January, we have another member of our church, Chris Bills. Chris, you probably don't know him. Chris is a wonderful man of God. He has been studying at Southern University, a good Southern Baptist conservative seminary under Dr. Albert Moeller and he has received his master's degree, and he applied and now has received uh, uh, scholarship money to pursue his Ph.D. So he's extremely excited about that, but part of that program is that he would be involved in the life of his local church. And so uh, his passion is apologetics, and that is to defend the Scripture, looking at the questions that people have today and giving absolute biblically sound answers to people regarding the Word of God, regarding God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, etc. So I'm thinking that maybe we give uh, Chris, you know, uh, a, a season of time to do an apologetics class on Thursday night too. So we're just going to mix it up and it's going to be a lot of fun, you know, and it gives others opportunity to do what even Scott has done numerous times for us. So just wanted to start out sharing that. Please be part of it. Please continue to come. I think you're going to get blessed in ways you can't get blessed under my teaching. Because every teacher is different. And everybody brings something to the table from God. And we need all of it, don't we? Amen. So tonight, what I'd like to do, uh, Scott did a fantastic job covering chapter 13. What an easy chapter to cover, too. I, I, I just picked... I gave him a softball, you know, he hit the thing out of the park, you know. No, that was a very difficult passage, and uh, I love the humility and the brokenness in his spirit as he delivered it. And uh, tonight what I'd like to do, unfortunately, is go back and quickly cover uh, just the overview of chapter 13, because chapter 14 and 15... Uh, are absolutely affected by what happened in chapter 13. You can't separate these three chapters. In fact, the rest of the book of 2 Samuel you can't separate. By the way, 
We should finish up uh, 2 Samuel uh, about the time, probably early December, we'll be done. Is that right? Is that what we said, Deb? Yeah. So, so that works out well too. But tonight, let's get started. Let's start with prayer. Father, tonight I want to thank you for your love for us and for the love of this body. We think about those in the body who are suffering, who are going through trials at this time, and we know that some have had surgery recently, others who are projected for surgeries. Uh, we have others who are just uh, having a difficult time uh, physically right now. And so we lift them to you, Lord. We pray for, for not only our church family, we pray for our nation, we pray for our community. We're, we're, we're asking God that somehow you would use the Word of God to strengthen us, to to resonate deeply in our spirits, that it would cause us, compel us to share the gospel with the lost, to share the good news of Jesus with those who live in our community. And so, Lord, tonight again, it's not just an exercise in mental uh, uh, spiritual growth, but, Father, it is a practice that we're looking for, something that we take from the Word and we live out in our lives each and every day. We give you thanks for that, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring special understanding to each person here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. It is interesting how the Holy Spirit not only does a, a, a corporate or objective work with the whole group through a Bible teaching, but He really does hone in to the subject, subjective, where He individually, like you're hearing the same thing as the person over here as back there, and yet all three of you are getting something different from the Spirit. That's the beauty of God. Amen? Okay, from chapter 13, we have this terrible act of violence in King David's family. His daughter, Tamar, is raped by her half-brother, Amnon, or Amnon. But just as tragic as the act of rape within a family, uh, and they were, they were half-brother, half sister is the fact that David, Amnon's father and Tamar's father, David did nothing about it. Zero. Amnon is guilty on all accounts in this story. It was another family member, Jonadab, David's nephew from his brother, who met with Amnon and together they conspired a plan so that Amnon could be alone with Tamar and take full advantage of her. And what kind of a sick, sordid person would do that? Plan out a rape. So Amnon, in order to not only take advantage of Tamar, he also puts this plan in place to take advantage of King David, his father, of the authority that David carries. And so in the plan, uh, he fakes his sickness so that his father, David, would come and visit him. And David does. Good thing it wasn't COVID. David wouldn't have visited, right? And maybe they would have averted this whole thing. But anyway, so COVID does have its positives, okay? Uh, he fakes the sickness. David visits. He asks David to send his half-sister Tamar to him that she might, he said in the text, that I might see her make the bread cakes and that she might uh, feed me with her hand, that she would have to come over to me while I'm in bed and feed me. And David 
goes off and he orders Tamar to go and prepare the bread cakes for her sick brother and then to, to feed him. Uh, David is being fully manipulated in this story by Amnon. Amnon, by the way, is David's oldest son. Amnon, there's a special place in David's heart for Amnon. And so he, he just trusts him. One would think that David would punish Amnon after seeing this event take place, that he would punish him to the full extent of the law. Forget it. Didn't happen. Why? Because when you yourself, the king, have an unbridled sexual passion that has ruled you your entire adult life as a king, why in the world would you ever call out your son? There's something in that for us tonight to think about. That if there is a hidden sin, a pet sin that we've lived with, that we continue to live with, we might think, well, I've, I'm okay with this. It's a little thing. It's not a big thing. Nobody knows. It's okay. I can go to church. I can sing the songs. I can play the part. Um, you have no witness. Especially when someone, maybe a friend, comes to you and says, I've been struggling in this area of my life, and that's the very area that you have been mastered by Satan. You have no witness. That's the case with David. So there's no discipline. There's no restraint placed upon on Amnon. I mean, look, David himself had many wives and many more concubines and many more children than concubines. This is a man who is untethered in his lustful passion. It's just interesting to me that within three chapters of time, we are going to see the full swing of David from this man who is overtaken by this lifelong sin, sexual lust, and yet we're going to see the opposite of that, complete opposite of that, where he is completely broken before God. Completely broken. I love when the Bible reveals those pictures for us because we need them. Because everybody here has sin. Everybody here has sinned, will sin. We need to know how God treated David that God is no different with us. That God is always looking for a way to take a bad thing and turn it into a good thing. <laughs> you know, I would never want to speak to a child in discipline and say, you're a bad, that, you're a bad person, or that was a bad... Look, look, God can take the worst child and make them the greatest pastor. He can do whatever he chooses to do. We need to be careful with our words when we address kids. But the reality is, it's a complete turnaround, what God does in our lives if we allow him. And he did it in David. And we need to see that. So God doesn't give up on us. Can you imagine, though, with this situation, can you imagine what Tamar felt? Because David didn't do anything with Tamar either. 
David was not a good parent. He just wasn't. He was an extremely dysfunctional father with his kids. Isn't that amazing? For him to be the greatest king of Israel. If you talk to any Jew today, an Orthodox Jew, and ask them who the greatest king of Israel, they immediately go to David. And yet David, we see all these vulnerabilities and weaknesses and sins in his life. But I can't imagine what Tamar must have felt. Her, her, her father, who is the king of Israel, completely dysfunctional, pushing it off, not addressing it with her. Can you imagine the anguish in David? Think about David himself, knowing his history, now seeing sin manifest, born out of his own sin in his kids. Think about the anguish that he must have felt, but he couldn't do anything about it because he's still practicing those sins. This is no doubt the reason why Solomon wrote so much about the importance of disciplining your children. It's amazing. He saw the effect firsthand of a father who would not discipline his children. So later, another son, Absalom, and we're going to look at that tonight, he would rebel against his father, and the Scripture says that David never once said anything to Absalom because it might displease the child. Wow. Such behavior from a father doesn't make your child love you, I'm telling you. When the way he treated this did not make Tamar or Amnon love him. It actually built up in Absalom an absolute hate for David. And Solomon saw that. That's why Solomon wrote in Proverbs 13, 24, write these down, I'll just give them quickly. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. You don't love your child because you don't discipline them. You hate them. Now, you would never say that you hate your child, and in your heart, you don't hate them. But honestly, if you're not willing to discipline, you're not helping them at all. He said, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Man, oh man, was that not true for my growing up? Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Man, I remember when I was just like in kindergarten and I kicked a girl at my birthday party with my new boots. I'll, I won't tell you what else I did. I was a little holy terror. And, and my parents did not spare the rod. There are probably times my mom now, living here in Vero, wishes she could still take the rod to me. I don't know. <laughs> Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You reprove a child. That's wisdom to do that. You, you set them straight. Better that you see the, 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 the ugliness and deal with it with the child and then to grow up and that ugliness manifest in public and in the way they live their life. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. 
Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> Go to the child's uh, family uh, services and just share that, that scripture with them. Enlighten them. Now, none of this is meant to be abuse. It's not talking about abusing your children here. It's a, it's a steady, calm, loving hand that brings discipline to a child. If you love your child, you're in control. You, you don't just go crazy over your kid and abuse them. Verse 14 in that passage in chapter 23 says, If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Wow. I wonder how many, how many inmates on death row would have been saved had they had a mother who disciplined them. Now, that's not to say that some didn't. Some might have had better moms than you and I. Because there's no guarantee on anybody, right? You can have 20 kids and all 20 come out differently. No guarantees on that. But they will know they can't blame mom or blame dad if they were disciplined properly with love. So he wrote all of these, Solomon writes all these about the necessity of discipline because in his own father he saw a terrible disciplinarian. <laughs> it was probably because of his own guilt for his behavior that kept him from addressing Amnon's behavior. So Amnon goes on without any punishment except Absalom. Uh, the brother of Tamar, he hated Amnon, and he waited for his day. It was two years later that Amnon, that, uh, I'm sorry, <coughs> excuse me, that Absalom goes to his father, and he says, hey, it's, it's time to shear the sheep. We want to have a big party. Let me grab a drink. We want to celebrate. And I want all my brothers to be there so we can, you know, kind of build some unity. He probably didn't say, Dad, we're so dysfunctional and messed up. I'd just like to try to bring, bring us all together we can talk about it. No, no. And uh, he said, Dad, I'd like you to be there. And David said, really? Mm, I'm pretty busy. I don't think I can attend. There's a good dad for you. <coughs> and then uh, Absalom said, well... Because Absalom had laid out this plan too. Well, if you can't be there, can Amnon come in your place? He's the oldest. He'll represent you. And David, was, he was suspect of Absalom's uh, motivations. But he agreed. And so Absalom had his party, and we know what happened at that party. He had his servants take... Uh, Amnon's life. He told his servants, strike Amnon, then kill him. Strike him, let him know that he's in trouble and he can't get out of it, and then go ahead and, and kill him. If you remember, David had made one of the, his invasions against the Geshurites, and uh, he took the daughter of the king as his wife, and she bore him Absalom. So as David was adding wives and taking these women that were not of God's people, he was, he was given Absalom as a son. And this is how Absalom repays him. If you remember also, Absalom 
after he had Ammon killed, headed off back to the land of the Geshurites. And he goes and lives with his grandfather, his mother's dad, who was the king, on the other side of the mountain so that he could hide out, he could be safe. Who's to say that the king maybe wasn't even in on the plan to try to get even with David for taking his daughter? Who knows? So this is a very interesting story here. David, when he learned of Amnon's death, uh, he mourned. The Bible says, and David mourned for his son day after day. The father's mourning for the son that he never disciplined when he raped his sister. How sick is all of that? So now we come to chapter 14. Verse 1, now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah uh, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the uh, dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth, and when the woman of Tekoa... By the way, that's an interesting thing. The Tekoites are very interesting people. In the scripture, it speaks of them, and they are a very wise people of, of, of Israel. Very wise tribe of people under the priestly tribe. And she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to the king... And said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field, and there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the one, now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so, they would not, and so they would destroy the heir also. So basically what she's saying is, the only son left now, the one who killed the brother, if he's taken, my husband, his name ends. There's nobody to carry the name forward. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave, and leave uh, to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give the orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my, love, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. So remember now, Joab has, he has realized that David is in deep mourning over the loss of his son Amnon, and so he has this plan. And, 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 but it's also interesting... Uh, because Absalom is away from David, he wants Joab's wanting Absalom to come home. He's wanting David to reconcile. But you know what? Pride gets in the way. Neither one would, would give in to the other. Too prideful. So he devises this plan. He employs a woman in Tekoa to go to David with a sad story out of her own life. And now everyone wants to kill the son that's left, and her husband's name will end with his death. And the king said in verse 10, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more. 
the, whenever it talks about the avenger of blood, it's talking about the one who wants to take out the one who killed another. So um, in this case, uh, he's talking about, uh, in the woman, with the woman, uh, those who want to kill her son. And uh, the woman said in verse 12 again, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you... Or, I'm sorry, I kind of moved ahead. But David basically is agreeing to keep the boy alive, not let anybody kill him. So we're going to forgive him, we're going to pardon him. That's when she opens up and she says, Why... the uh, a word to my Lord, he said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision to the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. You're going to pardon my son who killed his brother, but you're not going to pardon your son who killed his brother. So now look, David didn't discipline Absalom. He didn't go after him to say, what were you thinking and now you're going to suffer for it. You're going to pay for it. He just ignored him again. The greatest dysfunction in a family is when nobody talks about the problems in the family. David didn't do that. But he did hold this against Absalom, and his own pride wouldn't let him go and sit down with his son. And now he's been again, just like before, when Nathan caught him in a story that Nathan told, you know. And, of course, David thought, oh, that's terrible. That man did th that terrible thing, taking that other man's little ewe lamb. So that man needs to pay back seven times, sevenfold. And he said, David, that, that's you. That's what you did with Bathsheba. You stole another man's wife. And now he's being told again, this is you, David, by this woman. You, you're the one. So David seems to repeat the same kind of sins, doesn't he? Pride will do that to us. Pride doesn't care how many times you've fallen. It only cares to rule you, to keep control of you so that you don't improve, you don't recover, you don't mature, you don't grow. And so verse 14, we must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of, the, of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. And David was very wise in his judgments with people, just very poor of a judgment with his children. And the Lord your God will, God will be with you. And then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my, king, the, uh, my, the Lord, my Lord the king speak. And look at this. David said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? So you brought me to the attention of my own issue with Absalom and that I need to reconcile with Absalom. Where did that come from? Is Joab with you? And the woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things 
that are on the earth. So, mm, this pride thing. Isn't it stupid how <laughs> it just so keeps us from doing what is right with people? The thing we really want to do, we won't do because we don't want to go first. Well, she's got to come to me. I'm not going to go first. She's got to come to me. I'm really miserable, and I really don't like what's going on. I really want it to all be over, but I'm not going to say it first. She has to. She's got to come to me. That's, isn't that, I, I'd hate, hate to have a playback in heaven for our lives and the times that we let our pride keep us from doing what was right. Mm. We do these stupid things we, because of our stupid pride. I didn't call you stupid. I said that it's, pride is stupid, right? If we look at it for what it is. We allow things to go on and simmer. We allow things to go on in turmoil just because of our pride. I had a friend. His name was Ray Brigham. When I knew him probably 25 years ago, Ray was in his 80s at that time, and his heart's passion was to travel to churches and hold prayer summits. And the purpose of the prayer summit was to be a harbinger for revival to break out in, the, in, in that congregation where people who are holding issues against one another would finally step forward, confess their sin, and reconcile with their brother and their sister. And Ray used to say, we actually did it. We did it with a congregation in town. Uh, we had a prayer summit between the two congregations. There was no issues between us, but we just thought, let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's get rid of the pride in my church and the pride in your church, you know, or God's churches, right? And so, but Ray used to say this a lot. He would say, talking about reconciliation, you know that there's this person in your church, they've got issues, you've got an issue with them, and you guys need to reconcile, and you've been saying for a long time, well, they got to go first. I'm waiting for them to come to me. They're the ones that did it. they got to come to me. And Ray used to say, the one closest to Christ will go first. Man, talk about just running a bulldozer over you, you know. The one cr closest to Christ will always go first. But the foolishness of pride keeps us from going first. It literally hinders our Christian witness. And we just don't see it. All we see is the wrong that that person committed. And we, we live there. We stick on that. That's it. And that's wrong. Well, this foolishness in this story doesn't end here. Without reading the text now, Absalom isn't the kind that you can just ignore. He wanted Joab to come over and set up a meeting with his dad. So he reached out to Joab several times through messengers. Joab never responded. Absalom's wanting to come back to Jerusalem, but he wants Joab to be the guy to make it happen. Joab won't respond to Absalom. So Absalom looks over at Joab's field that was next to his field, and the harvest was looking pretty good, but it was kind of dry. He told his servants, go out and set his field on fire. And so they literally burned down Joab's field. Well, that got Joab's attention. 
Look at this, verse 32. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. In other words, Absalom is saying, uh, I can't seem to get your attention, so let me just burn your field down. Absalom shows up. He's like, what the heck? What were you thinking? And he said, well, I guess that's what it took to get you here. And he said, I've been living in Geshur, and I guess I'll never get a chance to go home because I can't get you to do anything. Well, wait a minute, Absalom. Why don't you do it? Why don't you go humble up? Don't let your pride get the best of you. He says, now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Oh, what a pretty little picture. I'm just going to tell you, all they did was put lipstick on a pig. There was nothing in it that was true reconciliation. It appears they reconciled this father and son, but not really. It's at this point, while he's kissing the king's ring, that Absalom is laying a plan to take over the throne because Absalom hates his father. I don't, we don't know why exactly. What, what's really the impetus behind the hatred towards David? But we do know that it was Absalom's sister who was raped by Amnon, and David did nothing. And so you got to think that there's this stored-up anger and resentment towards his father. And so verse 1, chapter 15, now we see it play out. So the little reconciliation moment didn't last very long. Kind of like on the after 9-11, a tragic event in our history. Everybody here knows where they were when 9-11 happened. And really, any other great event in history, you probably remember where you were when JFK was assassinated. You remember where you were when the Challenger exploded. I know exactly where I was. And uh, now it says here, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. So Absalom is running around the city gate. He's just nothing more than a cheap politician. He's running around the city gate as people are coming in and looking for wisdom and advice from the king. And Absalom's like, oh, I feel so terrible for you that the king's so busy. He doesn't have time and he hasn't appointed anyone, but I'm his son, so let me just help you. And what, the more he did it, the more people came to him. And now he's putting his hand out that they might kiss him like he is the king. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. 
So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. They would return home to the land that they came from, all over Israel, and they would tell about Absalom, how wonderful he is, what, the, what a wonderful man he is. You could just imagine Absalom in public by that city gate and the kind words, the sympathy, the compassion, the taking of the time to lay out a, a, you know, a, a response, a, judge, a righteous judgment for that person who came all that distance to try and get help. Oh, my goodness. A total liar. He's a poser. He's not real. And uh, the people started to praise him. Um, what he was doing was stealing the hearts of the people, it says. Those that would come to Jerusalem looking for advice and sound judgment. Verse 7, and at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, so after four years of this, laying the groundwork, really laying the groundwork, at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. I want to stop for a second. Just feel led of the Spirit right now in this moment. Um, this very thing that we see Absalom doing right under the nose of the king in Jerusalem, in the holy city. We see people today who do the same type of thing in churches, right under the nose of spiritual leaders. They're building their core. They're rallying people to whatever that cause is that they are wanting to push upon the leadership. They're creating a schism in the church. And Paul was very clear that in the church, we must handle these types of matters. We don't allow those types of things to continue. The church leaders are not to be dysfunctional like David, not paying attention. They need to be aware of what's going on, listen to what people are saying, and then they need to lovingly confront the individual. And, and it doesn't start with the leaders. It, it starts with you. When you see someone who's disgruntled over whatever the matter might be, but when you see them sharing that with you or going to someone else, you as a member of the body of Christ of a local fellowship, and I'm not talking about BBF. We have a wonderful church, but I do know that we're all human. And these things can and they will happen in every church. But in churches, it happens all the time. But when that happens and you see it, you know what's coming. You know that it's going to grow. You have a responsibility, Paul said, to, to communicate with that person, to lovingly confront them, to go to them and say, hey, listen, you shared something with me and I've been bothered ever since you said it. I, I need to ask you one question. Okay, what's that? Have you taken this problem to the leaders? And they say, well, they don't have time for anybody. They pull an Absalom. The next thing out of your mouth, then I will go with you. 
when we will sit with the leaders and we will get them to respond to you. At that point, many times, the person then starts to back off because the leaders are aware and the leaders have spoken to that individual about whatever it is. They just don't like it. And we can avert a lot of disgruntled spirit attitudes that come into a church. But the ultimate step in church discipline is not to remove someone from the church. It's to love them enough to reconcile with them, to bring them to a point to see what they were doing was wrong. And then, then love them in the fellowship. If they, if they still want to keep that same disgruntled spirit and try to push others into it, that's when Paul said, remove them. You need to treat them, he said, as a pagan. Don't let them set up camp in the church. It'll destroy the church. And I'm telling you, a lot of good churches have faced oh, terrible schisms because of things like that. Very important that we understand, even out of this experience, David not handling matters as a spiritual leader as he should. I'm sure somebody had to say to David over a four-year period, hey, your son's out there. People are, I saw him kissing him. He's out there talking to people, and you need to find out what's going on. But see, in David's behavior, in his, in his personality, or his pathology, because it was really taking him down, it was destructive, he allowed those things to exist. Not, not, that's not loving Absalom by letting him get away with it. And now Absalom is going to die because his father never handled him when he was a boy. Mm. So again, verse 8, For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So Absalom just told his dad, Hey, I've been back now for four years, but... I really told the Lord that if he'd bring me back to Jerusalem, then I would go off and have a time to worship him. Um, if you believe that, I've got some beautiful oceanfront palm tree property in Siberia that I'd love to sell you. Um, the king said to him, go in peace. So he went, he arose and went to, Abr uh, to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Hmm, that's some worship of God. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went into their, in, in, they went in, they went with him innocently and knew nothing about his plan. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for, the, for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, who was David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So once, Ab <laughs> excuse me, once Absalom felt that he was in a strong enough position, he then headed for Hebron with some of the key leaders, and he announced his kingdom there in Hebron. And, and when the kingdom was announced, Israel began to gather under Absalom's leadership. Why? Because people from all over Israel had been going to Absalom for four years for help. And he was the one that was giving them the help they needed. So they're, they're behind him. And uh, he also turned cr 
crucial leaders of David's against David. It can happen. These are people that worked with David, that were faithful to David, and yet they turned against David. They turned to this guy who was wicked at the core, and they didn't see it. Who knows why? Why would somebody turn like that that was in leadership with David, who had served with David, had ministered with David? Why would they turn? Maybe because there's something inside of them. They wanted more power. They wanted greater position than what David gave them. Who knows? There's just a myriad of reasons why. Nobody really knows. But this is interesting. This whole thing with, with Ahithophel, uh, that he turned against David, it's, it's a desertion that really, it really hurt David deeply. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 55. David actually refers to Ahithophel betraying him in Psalm 55. This whole chapter is about that period of time when people were abandoning David and betraying him and going off with Absalom. Okay? So Psalm 55, it says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. David's in a bad place. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O oh Lord. Divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. He's referring to all that was happening down in the marketplace and down at the city gate. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals ins insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you... A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. This was somebody who was close to David. A trusted friend that ministered beside him. He continues in the psalm with a prayer of vengeance for their deceit and treachery. So the desertion from David of some of his chief men, this is where David speaks of it. I believe the verses 13 and 14 are speaking probably of Ahithophel himself. It leaves David's spirit completely depleted. It's as if somebody came and just slugged him in the stomach, knocked all the air out of his lungs. And David is gasping for air. He has nothing. He, he can't move. He's just overtaken. He's paralyzed. And this is what he wrote in that time. 
go back to verse 13 in our text. And, and a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, now this is interesting, there's been a change in David. I think David went from this man who was prideful, who wanted Absalom to come to him, and Absalom never would, and David said, well, I'm not going to go first. And finally, Joab arranged it. David and Absalom connect. Absalom says that he is sorry do whatever you need to do to me. David kisses him. And from that moment forward, Absalom now is back in Jerusalem, but he's not a friend to his father. He's not an ally. He's an enemy. David all of a sudden goes from pride to great pain and suffering, and it leaves him broken before God. I believe this is where David begins to look back at his life and the sins, his own sins, and how they played out in the lives of his children. It's as if David now comes to the end of himself. He doesn't really care going forward to do anything about it. He's like, I'm just going to put it before the Lord. If the Lord wants me to be king, then the Lord will restore me to Jerusalem. But maybe the Lord is allowing Absalom to do this, to discipline me, and I will never be king again. I believe that's where he's at. Look at verse 13. And the messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us. From Absalom. Now, wait a minute. He still has an army. He still has soldiers. He could stand up against and defend the city. He's got the gated city. He's a different man. He's not going to defend anything. He's just going to walk away and let God do whatever God chooses to do. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David also didn't want others to die because of his problems. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all of his, his households after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him. And all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath, from the land of the Philistines, passed on before the king. And then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. He's calling Absalom now the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, since I, go I know not where." Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether death or for life, there also will your servant be. I love that, that even when you go through a time of betrayal, you find out who your true friends are. And oftentimes, 
it was not the people that you spent most of your time with. Really speaks to me. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. So they're going to go down, leave the city, go down, across the stream or the, the, the brook of Kidron, and climb up the Mount of Olives, which is 200 feet higher than the city of Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. I think David is looking at his life as a whole, and he clearly sees sin, <clears throat> and he sees the fallout, and it breaks him. He abandons Jerusalem with his faithful followers, and they start up the mountain. <clears throat> but as they cross the Kidron stream, weeping with their heads covered, we see a sad and pitiful sight. David, the king, a great conqueror, is not putting up a fight. They're leaving quietly, except for the crying. You can hear the crying. They've all covered their heads, including the king. It says in verse 24, And Abathir, uh, Abiathar, I'm sorry, came up, and behold, Zadok, those are both priests, they came also with the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. They're going to bring the ark with them and follow David. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. So he's now putting his complete trust in God for his future. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And the king also said to Zadok the priest, you, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of, the, of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So they're going to be the messengers that bring David word of how things are going back in the city. But David went up to the, uh, he ascended to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. That's interesting. That's exactly where Jesus was when he was weeping, you know, the night before his betrayal, the night of his betrayal. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. You know, oh, oh, well, I'm sorry. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. This is all, these are all signs of someone who is broken and who is repenting. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was, da and it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. In other words, I'm in your hands, but God, don't let those who have manipulative uh, wishes and plans, don't let those plans play out over the people and over your city. So at the news of Ahithophel, David turns to God for help. And while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to, to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Now, I don't want to pass over what we just read, though. Um, it says that while David was committing to the summit where God was worshipped, 
when David gets to the top of the Mount of Olives, he stops and he worships the Lord. That is the ultimate sign that someone is at the end of themselves. Knowing what the situation David's in, how dire, and yet he's turning to the Lord. There is no pride now. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. In other words, there's a good chance Absalom will allow you to also be a counselor to him as you have been for me. You just need to let him know that you're there to support whoever the king is. And now that it's Absalom, I'll be supportive. And you can offset whatever Ahithophel says to uh, Absalom. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their, son, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Um, so the priests who wanted to follow David, bringing the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the presence of God. Uh, and Hushai, who is this great counselor of David's, they go back as the king requested. And they now are in the camp with the enemy. And they're able to report to David what's happening. But I think the point that we need to make here is God has gone a long distance to finally grab David's attention and to bring him to the end of himself. And really this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Nathan gave to David when he confronted David. Remember he said that your sons will rebel. He told David that. And now, so David's not going to fight it. No, the prophet already says, this is supposed to happen. So I'm not going to fight it. So this is where David really turns back to the Lord. So that is why I believe David had a heart after God. Not because he was perfect, not because he had it all together. Please hear me as I say this, church. Put this in the context of today. The temptation that we fall into is self-righteousness, where we pride ourselves for our own righteous life. I've got it together. I wear the clothes. I go to church. I sing the songs. I'm a Christian. I'm not like that guy. I'm not like this guy. And we can point the finger quickly and easily at others. This is a wake-up call for us. David was the king, the greatest king of Israel, but he had issues and God broke him. God changed him so that David would not even stand up against his son who was rebelling and trying to take over the throne. He put it in God's hands. How we need to recognize we're no better than David. We have issues too. We're not as righteous as we think we are. And yet God loves us. And if we'll humble up before the Father, He will move in our behalf. Whatever that means. 
It might mean that he removes us from a position of leadership. It might mean that he, he puts us back in a position of leadership. But one thing he will do, and that is he will position you at the foot of the cross, reconciled, pardoned, righteous in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. That's the one thing we have that nobody can take from us. And that should be the most important thing that you hold on to. Nothing else. And I just love the story for that. Because we will be wronged by people. <laughs> if it hasn't happened, uh, this is an older crowd, so I, I know I'm, I'm speaking to the, I'm preaching to the choir. You've all experienced it, I'm sure. And if you haven't, you will. Give people a little time. And guess what? There's probably been times when you betrayed someone. You were not the friend that they needed. You said, well, if they'll go first, then we can reconcile. Father, tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you for putting the Holy Spirit in us to teach us the word, to help us understand the word, to enlighten us not only to the knowledge of the word, but to the issues in our lives that need to be sharpened by the Word. Tonight, the Word of God is like a, like a surgeon's scalpel, and it goes into each of us subjectively, begins to cut out the sin that, it, that, that resides. I pray that we will allow it to happen, and I pray, Lord, that it would make us like David, who comes before the Father and is willing to take whatever the Father has for him. May we be the same in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.